Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, children, for playing and singing and for what you're about to do later on during communion. And thank you, our older children, for singing along with them and adding to it. We thank you very much. Wow. Now, in this text, our Lord comes right out and pulls no punches and says very clearly, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to that one through whom they come. Now many of you UT fans are saying, yeah, them Sooners led me to sin yesterday by saying things I shouldn't say at the television screen. <coughs> Sorry, Longhorn fans, that is not the case. That sin, unfortunately, dwells within our own bosom which is really what this text is about, the sin that dwells within our own bosom. You see, it is very easy for us to look at someone else's sin, to look at how they do things and what they do, to be very quick to correct and show that they need to take this advice and wisdom and not take the wisdom and advice ourselves. That is really what this text is about. When our Lord says temptations to sin are sure to come, He is not asking us to look at where temptations come from out there. He's asking you and me to look here. Because they are sure to come. And He's asking us to look here so that we don't perpetuate the sin that is sure to come upon us, upon someone else. And how do we know such things? Because he is very quick to point out the horrific punishment for foisting our sin upon one of these little ones. Little ones being young Joshua or other believers in Christ that are small in size, stature and chronology or little ones like the ones with whom we sit in the pew or in this congregation whose lives are affected by each of us individually in how we relate not just to them but to them as they watch and perceive us relate to them. Woe to that one through whom these temptations come. This proclamation should stop us cold, as it did the disciples who heard it. And for the sake of clarity, the disciples were told, pay attention to yourselves. This is not about you looking out there to find out what's wrong with them and how they need to act and be acting so that these little ones aren't hurt by them. That is not what the text is about. The text is about us looking here for how we foist our own peccadillos and our own sins upon others. But which sin? We've got laundry lists within our lives. 
Which one is it that our Lord wishes to us to focus upon? And he's very, very precise. When in the next breath, after he says, pay attention to yourselves, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So that sin of which our Lord is saying temptations to sin come, watch yourself, that sin which our Lord does not want us to foist upon others is the sin of how we give forgiveness or the sin of how we receive forgiveness. As you and I look about how we give forgiveness, we can find so many examples of being selective in how we give forgiveness and not all-encompassing as our Lord gave us forgiveness. We can look around us and see how we receive forgiveness in that do we receive it and acknowledge God's forgiveness because we finally feel like we are worthy of it? Being selective in giving forgiveness and accounting worth or value to ourself in receiving forgiveness are both damnable and ought to be repented, for it leads people astray, for it teaches them that forgiveness is something that must be merited and earned, must be deserving of being received, and must only be given when it's such an evocation of emotion is seen. That's false teaching, and it's damnable, and you and I must repent. That's what our Lord is teaching us, to pay attention to ourselves and repent. Consider where we learn forgiveness. The concept of forgiveness wasn't as if we can just come upon this great idea of forgiveness. It's a revelation to us, given to us at our baptism, as Joshua knows and experiences right now in his life. But where Joshua and where you and I came into conflict with what God reveals and with what we see and experience is how your mom and dad gave in forgiveness and received forgiveness to one another and to you. That's where you and I learn that there is a difference, isn't there, between what God reveals and what man practices. It's in our house. And if it's in our house, yours and mine, it's in the church. And it's damnable. And we need to repent. For our Lord did not put boundaries around his forgiveness that he's offered to you. And our Lord did not wait for you to feel as if you were worthy of his forgiveness to receive you back. 
you can tell that the disciples got the point of what our Lord was saying by their response. Because their response to what Jesus had just preached and proclaimed was, increase our faith. They could see that they did not have that which God was proclaiming. Which it is our Lord's hope that we too look at ourselves after hearing this and saying, Lord, increase our faith. For I do not forgive as I have received such forgiveness. And I do not receive as you have so freely and bountifully given. I put limits on your forgiveness. I limit it in giving it to others and in giving it to myself. Lord, help me to get out of the way. It is a good thing to repent. But the disciples, and in this case, the apostles, first and foremost, were looking in the wrong direction. When they cry out, increase our faith, they have the right concept of repentance. Their problem is where they're looking. Increase my faith! The longer you and I navel gaze about the lack thereof, faith and trust, and the great conflict of in the midst of our faith we have unbelief, the more we're focusing upon ourselves and not on the author and perfecter of our faith. The more we're looking for God to give us faith, the more we're not seeing He has given us faith. We're just coming to terms with all of the hypocrisy and unbelief that we're finding coexisting in the same heart. Faith is an on or off equation. It either is or isn't. It is not a little or a lot. It either is or isn't. God did not bring Joshua into faith simply to say, well, I'm going to start this. Let's see what happens. He has faith. Complete faith. Or why else would God say, unless we become like little children? What you and I struggle with as we grow older is not the fact that we have faith. It's the fact that coexisting in this faith in our person is a whole other realm of hypocrisy and problems. And we have trouble living with the reconciliation between the two. When the apostles cry out, increase our faith, the apostles are asking for God to do something to inoculate them and give them what they need. And God is reminding them very clearly, you've been given what you need. For you have been given completely and totally me. You don't need anything else. Stop looking inside of the contradiction and look where there is no more contradiction. Me. Not you. Me. Not them. Me. This is critical for the apostles, for they are the, the ones whose faith we confess in the words of those apostle creed. Not their specific exact words, but that they, upon whom we have built our faith in the New Testament, that that proclamation is sure and certain. And what erodes such sure and certain faith is the concept of how we give and receive forgiveness.
And what clarifies, purifies, and sanctifies such a convoluted person as we? The one who gives it freely and the one who never asks but receives and receives fully. People like us. That is why in the final parable, to punctuate all that he has said prior to this final parable, he makes the parable in a completely different fashion and goes down a different path that we don't expect. We remember Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life. So we're thinking, all right. But then in the parable, he's the one who says, come and serve me. And it's the servant who says we've done nothing but our own duty. Because the focus isn't upon what the servant is doing, but who we serve. Just as your and my focus cannot be upon us who do the serving, but upon the one whom we serve who proclaims to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we have been good in any way, but because He has made us good. Not because we've been faithful in any way, but because His faithfulness is that which covers over our faithlessness. Then there is resolution to this conflict within us. But for a time, because the next thing you know, we're challenged. We're contradicted within ourselves, and we're crying out, Lord, increase our faith. And he's saying, repent and look to me. I am the one who declares you holy and righteous. I am the one that declares you my child, not because you deserve it, or because you can find something within you worthy of it, but because my son alone is worthy, and he has died for people such as you. Rejoice. Rejoice in such proclamation for you. You know the LWML's great hallmark statement? Serve the Lord with... The reason that a person is glad is not because of an emotive feeling, but because of what God has proclaimed about us, whom we know far better than we need to know and wish not to know such depth. But we know such depth of depravity as we know such depth of grace that covers such depravity. And we serve and love much because we've been forgiven much. In the name of Him who is our Lord and Master, Jesus. Amen. Peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds on Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. <clears throat>